In the autumn of 2021, Wicklow Arts Office sought to celebrate two local figures who arising from the Sex Disqualification Act in 1919 paved a way so that they could become the first females in their respective professions. Kate Tyrrell, the first female sea captain, and Avril Deville, one of the first female barristers to practice in Ireland. Avril and her colleague Frances Kyle were first called to the bar in 1921, blazing a trail for countless others in the decades and century that followed. To mark the legacy of the Wicklow native Avril Deville, poet Jane Clark was commissioned by Wicklow Arts to write a poem. I recently caught up with Jane to discuss the poem, the process, and poetry more generally. We start with Jane reciting the poem. In the Four Courts, I've heard how the silks speak of me, debutante turned dilettante, unfit to sit in their midst. But we're all drawn to the law, like gulls to the lighthouse at Wicklow Head. We don wigs and gowns, research and rehearse our arguments, adjusting volume, pace and pitch, primed for the courtroom stage, wits keen as the dagger in Macbeth. Amid the frozen fog of prejudice, I watch for the lantern's beam and step lightly through the portico to stand beneath Gandon's dome. That's lovely. Thank you. You must have some insight into law. Well, the thing is, I don't. Um, <laughs> and it, I think what really helped me, I mean, first of all, just to say, I was asked to write the poem by Wicklow Arts Office and Heritage Office, and it was for the decade of centenaries. And they decided to honour two women, two Wicklow women, Kate Turrell, the first woman sea captain, and Avril Deverell, because, you know, she, she was from Greystones. So they asked me to do it. I had five weeks to do it in to prepare for a performance. So I was I was under pressure and I rang an old friend, Justice Aileen Donnelly. And I said to her, you know, I just told her what I was doing. And she said, well, would you like to come in and, um, you know, see the law library, see the, the four courts, have a chat wow. about women in the law? She was just so um, generous. So she, so I sat down with her and Justice Faherty, both from the appeal court, and they, we, t we talked and they talked about what it might have been like for a woman at that time. And then we talked a bit about right up until now, what it's like for women in, in the law library and in that world. And then the other thing, I read an awful lot about Avril Deverell. Um, there is a retired English judge, Liz Goldthorpe, who's working on her biography. Now, she's done marvellous work and there's quite a few pieces online. So I read them and uh, I, I subsequently met Liz, but I hadn't met her before I wrote the poem. And then I, oh yeah, I also got to go to King's Inn's library and Renata there, the librarian there, showed me the archive, which is really, it is fascinating and it's there's something 
there was something very moving about actually seeing the archive because I had been reading all about Avril. I learned a bit about what, it's, what, what it might have been like. And then I saw things like, like she had the suffragette ribbon in her scrapbook. She wow. had all these play programs. So that's why the reference to Macbeth. I mean, she obviously not just liked the theatre, she adored the theatre. She acted herself in amateur performances. And one of the plays she was involved in was The Way the Vote Was Won. So, of course, that told me how political it was. It told me that she supported the suffragettes, which all women at that time would not have supported. You know, so I suppose what I was doing was picking up little hints, picking up little bits of knowledge about, because to write a poem, you have to go beyond the external details. That won't do it. You know, I needed to get something that would give me a feel for this person, as a sense of what made her tick, a, some, a sense of what was unique about this woman who, you know, went into the law library as the first woman. And like the other thing that um, Justice Donnelly arranged for me was to go into the law library, you know, and I mean, you know, all those desks are so close together and it's so small, in fact. I mean, that's what's really striking. And so, you know, as the only woman in that world of men, Seeing it physically was important for me, again, to get a feel for this person, empathize. to empathise. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's it's like, it's funny, it's like you do all the research, loads and loads of research, probably too much, you know, but then you hone down and you, you know, you have to get something that gets the poem going. And I, I, I just think it's fascinating that the more we examine Avril Deverell's story, from various different perspectives, and you've just provided another one in terms of her 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 growth for theatre and her political, um, I suppose, her political activism. Yeah. That you know, the individual is complex, and Absolutely. the more we come at it from different perspectives, you know, the, the rounder the, the rounder the picture we get. Yeah, that's it. And the complexity includes, you know, that she was a debutante, that she was, you know, presented to the court for George V. You know, so she was of that. Uh, upper middle class milieu, Anglo-Irish milieu. Um, but of course, there would probably have been a lot of that in the bar library, in the law library at that time anyway, I'd say. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's the, that's the complexity that, as you say, that and that within that you find the individual uh, is what you want to some way bring bring out in a poem. You know, when you, when you were commissioned to write a poem, how do you react to that? Because that's that's setting you a challenge and it's also limiting you in terms of what you have to focus on. Absolutely. It's it's I was just thinking about that this morning. It's two things. One is you're I was I'm delighted to be asked like, you know, that's that's great to be asked. But it's also very anxiety provoking. That's how I find it, you know, and particularly Avril Deverell was one of the, my most difficult commissions because I didn't know her world, you know, and because, you know, I had to get what could I relate to? You know, what could I how could I empathize was my question. And, and then what would set my imaginative world going? It's something about poetry. It's not. You know, I could write an essay about Avril Deverell so easily. That would be so simple. I just do the research, you know, and I, you know, but to get a poem going 
it's for me, it's something emotional has to get moving. It has to be an emotional response. And it's something about the emotion that then finds the image and then the image shapes the poems, poem you start to write. So for me, you know, the image of the gulls to the lighthouse of Wicklow Head, that was what gave it to me. The idea of the lighthouse, the law, you know, the lighthouse signifying law and what the law can mean for people. I suppose also when I was there with my friend, Justice Donnelly, I saw her stand beneath the dome in, you know, in the four courts. And I suppose I saw, and I was looking at the other barristers that day, and, you know, I think there's a real pride in being part of the law and there's a real love for the law. And they, you know, for the people involved in it, it's very meaningful for them. Um, and so that all, it was, it was all those kind of details that gave me a sense maybe of what kept this woman going. Because like just one little story about Avril, which I think says a lot, is that, you know, quite soon after she was in the law library, she was a wonderful golfer. She was in the Greystones Golf Society. The law library had a, or the bar had a, had a golf society and they changed the rules to omit women. She was the only woman who would have been in it and they changed the rules. I mean, that just says so much. But the other part, of the, and, and that wasn't and that wasn't changed back until 1976 or something. But the other part of it is that she kept playing anyway. <laughs> so, you see, it's those little stories that tell you a lot about somebody, what they're made of. Um, for me, when you read the poem, and, and you have to, like any poem, you have to read it a few times and, and kind of uncover but like it talks about the journey from Wicklow Head essentially into the into the Keys in Dublin. But yeah. then it, it talks about the journey of like that, the solitary female breaking through the, the, the ceiling yes. and that fog of prejudice. And I'm just wondering and coming back to her 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 association with the suffragette movement, the role of poetry and politics. And for example, we've seen it with Biden's inauguration, we see it in 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 the, the discussion on Thomas Kinsler. Poetry has is a tool in in that area of of politics, and I'm just wondering, have you any thoughts on that, or have you any? Yeah, I yeah I do. I mean, I think I think that if you have a political perspective on life, it's going to come through in your poetry. Uh, you know, as all your other passions come through in your poetry. But I also think. I think it's important that poetry, it's not, it, it shouldn't be polemical. It shouldn't be, you know, about rhetoric. It shouldn't be, it, it, it has to be primarily poetry. Uh, but within that, you can explore any subject under the sun. And often that will include politics, it, you know. But I think it'll work best if, if, if the poet is inherently political, if you see what I mean. You know, I mean, you can see that in somebody like Amanda Gorman, you know, politics, her life is about politics. She's been shaped by the politics of racism, for example. Um, so it comes out very genuinely in her work and very passionately in her work. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I, in some ways, it seems like they're opposite, doesn't it? Poetry on one side and politics on the other. Just one thing that comes to mind when you say that, I'm also thinking of Eva Gorbud, you know, the two sisters. One who took the very political road and the other who took both politics and poetry. Eva Gorbud was both very political and um, very much into literature. But she's an example of somebody who, you know, politics really shaped her poetry, but she also wrote love poems. Um, 
So I don't think they have to live apart, but I think that the the quality of the poetry has to come first, to my mind. And in some ways, poetry might have a more economical laser of focus in distilling some of the issues than prose or, you know, extended commentaries on, on, a, on, a, on a political issue. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like I'm reading Lucille Clifton at the moment. She's, uh, you know, a, a black American poet who died in 2010. I'm sure she has influenced Amanda Gorman, for example. But, you know, she's she wrote these very short poems, but, you know, so much about racism, about poverty, about discrimination against women. Um, and with these very short poems, she said more than any number of reports, exactly what you're saying. It's that distillation. And I suppose it's that work on drawing, you know, language and emotion and image together to reach another. You know, it's it's a very powerful form of communication when it works. It's very powerful. The other thought that rose me, and this might be a stretch, so you can call me out on it, but the more I thought about it, I was thinking there are parallels between poetry and, say, advocacy, that oral art. Yeah. You know, in terms of, like you say in the poem about Avril, pace and pitch. Yeah. Um, and it's literally kind of constructing that red thread, that, you know, that common theme to an oral argument, advocacy, where you have to present a kind of a whole, but you also have to break it up into constituent elements. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because I was thinking of the parallels with acting, with drama, you know. With, there might not be too much between them. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that is really interesting. And, and I, you know, I imagine that, you know, that barristers, you know, when they're doing their research, they're a bit like me, you know, you'd probably do much too much. And then you have to distill it and get the most important thing. And also that you, as the barrister, you have to think about your audience and you're, you're thinking about the effect you're creating um, also, as a barrister, you're probably aware of your limitations. As a poet, you're always aware of that. You're wishing you could make it better. And there's all of that that goes on. I'm sure that's part of it as well. But uh, yeah, that's a lovely uh, uh, link between the two. And it's interesting to think of the work of the barrister, some part of it being an art form as well. I mean, just just to say, sorry, just before you ask the question, I just want to say that when I read the poem for the first time in the Whale Theatre in, in Greystones, the next day I had an email from a young barrister, a woman recently qualified and practising, and she just said that the poem meant the world to her. And she said that it confirmed or it affirmed, confirmed her choice of career. So I just think it's really interesting that a poem I was writing about this woman in 1921 meant, you know, something to this young woman today. Years later, yeah. Yeah. So that I mean, I suppose maybe that was you know one of the most important pieces of feedback I've had about the poem. I love that idea, you know. Well, um, I'm going to mention the other P, the yeah. pandemic. Right. Yeah. Well, for me personally. Poetry during the pandemic has definitely taken on a greater significance than it had pre-pandemic. And yeah. like that, that that young lady, you know, she was moved by the poet, the yeah. poet and the poem. Um, and I'm just wondering, have you noticed any changes in terms of how people come to poetry or even your own processes around poetry during the pandemic? Has it changed or has it caused any different yeah. in terms of that? Well, I think 
undoubtedly there has been a turning to poetry all over the world and I you know I just think that's wonderful you know I really do believe you know, for me poetry is like music like if you if you thought of a whole lot of people who never heard music you know who never enjoyed music who never had access wouldn't you think that was tragic you know to not have music in your life well that's how I feel about poetry I think poetry is so akin to music and to think of people living without access to poetry is 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 terrible so i'm so delighted that through that 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 poetry has offered people so much during the pandemic and maybe people have found a kind of poetry that isn't as intimidating as some poetry can be and they've found a poetry that speaks to them more directly a poetry that moves them a poetry that speaks to their lives um yeah, I think as well when you know when you when you hear the poet like for example Rita Ann Higgins on the Brendan O'Connor show. Yes. So we get to see her, we get to hear her output, but we also yes. get to get some insight into the input and and the individual around it. And I think the poet as the individual is is probably the best promoter of poetry for stop and in their own work as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I, um, Rita Ann has done an awful lot for getting poetry out there, you know, and I suppose the thing is if people read her poems, they, you know, they follow up on her work and then maybe they're they're drawn to other other poetry as well. You know, I mean, it, it's interesting. You 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 have to wonder, you know, because also there's been the turning to nature um, and yet you just hope that that continues as our lives go slowly, slowly, slowly back to more normal. Um, I, I don't know, uh, um, you know, that's to be seen, but I hope that our turn to both poetry and to nature continue um, after, whenever we move out of this, or the new world that this will leave behind it. One of the focuses and for all of us, but for organisations and the bar is no no different, is that area of well-being, work-life balance, the role of creativity in well-being. What might be your thoughts on that? And maybe more specifically, or then after that, the role of poetry within that? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm really interested in that idea of creativity and well-being. It seems to me it's so important that no matter what it is we're making, it's something about the making. I mean, I could say, you know, I mean, we are mortal beings. I think we are living all the time, consciously or unconsciously, with the reality of death and the shortness of life and particularly as you get older of course but you know but children I think are very aware of it too in their own way and I think that it seems to me that making something is the opposite of death I think that's the power in making that while you're making your your you know creativity is the opposite to death and so that's at one level what it's about but I suppose also it's just about freeing our spiritual selves and you know there's all the you know mindfulness which I you know I really I really appreciate mindfulness but I think that when you're um creating there's a natural mindfulness you don't have to make yourself sit and stop while you're creating your mind is taken up with um it's it it just it frees up your mind in a way you have to free up your mind to create 
Um, so, yeah, I, I feel a very important. It's funny, it was somebody said to me recently that since he retired, he reads one poem every day after breakfast. And I thought, well, that's a lovely way of doing it. I suppose I think what we need is is simple ways. Like sometimes people think, oh, you know, there's the artist up there away from all of us. But actually, you know, obviously we're all artists. We all have that capacity to create. But also the people think poetry, you'd have to have done, a, you know, a degree to read poetry. But actually, you know, what you'd love is people just in that ordinary everyday way, even just to read. Or people to say to me about they read a poem a night before they go to sleep. I think that's lovely as well. You know, the I suppose it's ways in which we can bring Creativity, poetry into our lives in ordinary ways. Yeah, one one um, one podcast that I like is uh, Padre Otuma. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's yeah. Oh, is it Padre Otuma? Padre Otuma. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's a, a lovely voice, first of all. Yeah. But also, he just a lovely short kind of introduction to a poem. He maybe analyzes it or he gives a perspective on it, and then he recites it the second time, and it's. It's it's yoga for the brain. It is fantastic. I would recommend it to anybody. I'd hope if anybody watching this today would download it, you know, on their phone, Poetry Unbound. It's totally recommended. And he, he finds poems from all over the place. Yeah, Japanese. I mean, it's a real, it's a world yeah. tour. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just for yourself, then, what poets, what Irish poets do you admire? And maybe we might just stick with contemporary poets. If you had to suggest anyone else other than Jane Clark to read, who might you suggest, Jane? Maya Cannon would be one. She's this poet from Donegal, uh, a, a wonderful, you know, really amazing poet. Um, our beautiful poet, really gorgeous work. Um, I, of course, would recommend uh, Seamus Heaney, very influential uh, to me along the way. Um, I know you said contemporaries, but can I go back to Patrick Kavanagh? I know he was on the school syllabus and that might have put people off, but he's another uh, wonderful poet. Um, Yvonne Boland, I mean, we only lost her two years ago um, uh, before her time. Uh, just another uh, marvellous Irish poet. Um, but like it's a really good time for Irish poetry. And I'd say particularly maybe for women uh, Irish poets, their, their voice is uh, very loud at the moment. They're really getting out there and doing marvellous work. Um, well, Elaine Nicolanon is another contemporary Irish poet um, who I'd really recommend um great yeah it's good yeah. to get a recommendation yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many others i could say i know but well, that's the problem yeah 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 um i was listening to your poem i think it's the river yes and then obviously i understood that you're from roscommon i would say definitely there's parallels between your work and Patrick Kavanagh, there's a very much an earthy land, place name, place marks, geography kind of dimension. Yes, well, yeah, I mean, thank you very much. I I think, you know, Patrick Kavanagh would have influenced, his work would have influenced mine an awful lot. It is that thing about creating permission. You know, you know, I think all, a lot of us grow up thinking, 
what would you write about where I come from for, you know? I mean, I grew up wanting to get away from Roscommon, wanting to get away from Fiority. That was all I wanted to get to Dublin, get to the wider world. And then it was, you know, it was only my 40s I started writing. But that was, I was drawn back to those early days on the farm. But I think reading, I, I do think that reading poetry as a child is is really important even though you mightn't realize it at the time but it gives you all these images they're they're, they're still in your mind years later so i think that you know that what i had read of his back 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 those days uh influenced then what i wrote 30 years later um that, that could very well explain why soundings has yeah. such a fan base amongst people in the 30s, 40s and beyond, because uh, it, it arose at such a pivotal formative time in, in our education. Yeah. And people are going back to it without yeah. fear of exams and without the pressure. You know, they're just going back to it for pleasure now. And that's a very different way of reading it. Maybe just to finish up. I'm sitting at home. I want to make some tentative attempt at my own poetry, yeah. what three things should I do? Well, ideally, if you could, to join a group. That would, I would, I would say that there's something about being part of a group and getting feedback on your writing. That was, that was really important for me. Um, and also because the other thing is I'd say put, try and get some kind of a, a regular poetry practice, a regular reading and writing. Like reading is so important. You know, find contemporary poets, get some of those big anthologies, you know, like the Blood Axe anthologies, and find poetry that you love, you know, and, and follow what you love, follow the pleasure of the poem, I think, particularly when you're getting started. Later you can do the study, but at the moment just follow the pleasure. And so time every day to read and time every day to write. Even if you said half an hour every day, I'll write. Um, so, yeah, reading, writing, being part of a group, um, getting feedback on your work. Um, I suppose I think those are the most important for getting started. Um, and then it'll, it'll flow on from there. Uh, and I suppose just to say that you to let yourself it doesn't have to be good initially like none nobody wrote good poems initially we all just you have to let yourself mess around and sleeping on it and walking on it are both very important things I find you know there's something about sleeping that allows the unconscious work with whatever you're working with but walking kind of frees up the mind when you go back to it then so you know it, it, you know, I sometimes think when I'm going for a walk, well, this is part of my work. I like that idea, you know, <laughs> that going for a walk is, is while I find it very pleasurable, it's also part of my work because it helps my thinking process, my process, you know. Thank you so much. It's great hey. to, to, to meet the poet and to get an understanding of, of your work. Yeah, thanks very much, Cormac. It's a pleasure, pleasure. In the four courts. I've heard how the silks speak of me, debutante turned dilettante, unfit to sit in their midst. But we're all drawn to the law, like gulls to the lighthouse at Wicklow Head. 
We don wigs and gowns, research and rehearse our arguments, adjusting volume, pace and pitch, primed for the courtroom stage, wits keen as the dagger in Macbeth. Amid the frozen fog of prejudice, I watch for the lantern's beam and step lightly through the portico to stand beneath Gandon's dome.